So uh, take your Bibles and find Matthew chapter 18. That's kind of where we're going to springboard from today. So today's Torah portion is Vaishlach, which means he sent. And it's taken from Genesis chapter 32, verse 4, all the way to chapter 36, verse 43. So before we go any further, I'm going to uh, recite a blessing over the reading of God's word. I've esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law does he meditate day and night. I will delight myself in thy statutes, and I will not forget thy word. Deal bountifully with thy servant that I may live, and keep thy word. Open thou my eyes, that I might behold wondrous things out of your Torah. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. All right, so Matthew chapter 18. Today we're going to be talking about how to deal with toxic people. This is an issue that if you haven't dealt with it in your life, you're going to. As long as there's human beings and more than just us, you're going to deal with a toxic person at one point in your life. And there's this falsehood that's perpetuated in parts of Christendom that's like, well, if you're a believer in Jesus, you got to love everybody and forgive everybody and you just got to let everybody in. No, no, you don't. I mean, yeah, you got to love everybody, but just because you love somebody doesn't mean that you have to bring them into your circle of influence. So... All right, Matthew chapter 18, starting with verse 15. Matthew 18, 15. Now if your brother or sister, we can say, now if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault while you're with him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother and or sister. But if he does not listen, take with you one or two more so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, that every word may stand. But if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to Messiah's community. Others say, tell it to the church, meaning not blab it out in front of the whole congregation. It means tell it to the elders, the leaders of the church that can make decisions on these things. And if he refuses to listen to the Messiah's community, let him be to you as a pagan or a tax collector, meaning you just don't fellowship with him anymore. Jesus is giving us permission right here to cut people off if we have to. It's not something we want to do. It's not something that we look forward to doing. But sometimes we have no choice but to cut people off. And it's okay if it's done in the right way. So it says uh, back in verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault while you're with him alone. That's very important. If you confront somebody you have an issue with, and there's a lot of other people around or there's a crowd or somebody's with you, they could get on the defensive. They feel like they're being attacked. You know, just like an animal that's cornered, what are they going to do? They're going to fight back. So it's really nobody else's business, especially if it's you that has the issue with this person. It's nobody else's business. It's between you two. So usually it can be worked out. That's step one. Usually it could be worked out with just the two of you. But if that doesn't happen, bring two or more people with you. Now, this kind of implies two or more people that don't have a dog in the fight. So don't bring somebody who's biased and say, yeah, I got your back no matter what. You know, if you're wrong, bring somebody that if you're wrong, they're going to point out that you're wrong. Bring somebody that's not favored towards you or, or biased against the other person. In other words, somebody that doesn't have a dog in the fight. 
Because this is quoting in Deuteronomy chapter 19.15, it says, uh, So that bring two or more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let ev that every word may stand. So it doesn't turn into a he said, she said kind of thing. So if there's two other people that are witnessing what's going on, they can say, no, that's not what he said. No, that's not what she said. Yep, this is what they said. So there's a record of it. So it's not this he, he said, she said thing. But if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to Messiah's community. Because back then, uh, the congregations, the churches or synagogues, weren't just a place that you went to learn about God, sing a couple songs, listen to a sermon. It's if you had a problem in the community, the elders were like the judges of that community, and they could work it out. They could listen to both sides and come up with a solution. You know, it's kind of like two kids fighting. They want to find the nearest adult because, hey, he did this. It's his fault. He pushed me a minute. And the adult has to sort it out. And whatever the adult says, the kids are like, okay, I can deal with that. It stands. Well, it's kind of the same thing in Messiah's community. If you had the elders of the community come together, listen to both sides and make a decision, that decision stood. And, and back then it was called a bait dean or a house of judgment. So if he refuses to even the listens to Messiah's community, in other words, if the elders render a decision and the person don't like it and refuses to abide by it, cut them off. Cut those people off. Treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, you know, I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't go to mosques and worship with the Muslims. I don't go to Buddhist temples and rub the belly of Buddha or whatever they do. I'm not trying to be insensitive or anything. I don't, it's not that I'm against them as like hate them or whatever, but I don't have anything in common with them, so I don't fellowship with them. I could be friends with them, but I'm not going to be buddy-buddy with them. So if this person refuses to go by the decision of the elders of the community, treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. A tax collector was somebody who was a turncoat. They were like Benedict Arnold, so to speak. So they, you know, you just don't have anything to do with them because they can't be trusted. Now, let's also turn to Titus. So you have First and Second Timothy, then you have Titus. So Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. Now this is important too, because I know what the scripture says, that we're to have an answer for the hope that we have within us. You know, that if somebody, you know, wants to know something about our faith, that we've got to be there with an answer. We've got to find out an answer and get back to them and all this kind of stuff. But there's some people, you can give them an answer, but they just want to keep bickering. They want to keep splitting hairs. They want to keep you know, uh, causing trouble. So know when somebody's sincere in their inquiries and somebody who's just really trying to yank your chain. And this is what Paul is addressing. So in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, says this, dismiss. What does dismiss mean? It means just, hey, get going. Get on your way. Get out of here. Dismiss a quarrelsome person after the first and second warning. So it's not even three strikes you're out. It's two strikes you're out. Okay, I understand you may have a question or an objection after the first answer I gave, but you know if you're still quarreling after the second over the same issue and it's pretty stupid, I don't have time for that. I don't have time for you. So it says, dismiss a quarrelsome person after the first or second warning. Knowing that such a person is twisted and is sinning, he is condemning himself, or he is self-condemned. So in other words, they just want to argue for the sake of arguing. They just love to cause drama. I mean, sometimes you post something on Facebook and it can be the most benign thing and somebody will have a problem with it and they'll want to start an argument with you. It's like, come on, like, really? This is my wall, not your wall. Go leave me alone. Right? <laughs> so just because you forgive someone 
doesn't mean that you have to uh, you know, be their friend or let them back into your life. It's okay to cut people off, and biblically, I'll show you why. So in Genesis chapter 32, so our Torah portion is in Genesis chapters 32 through 36, so we're going to be hanging out there pretty much the rest of the time. So in Genesis 32, 7, these messengers that Jacob sent on reconnaissance, whether they were real people or angels, we don't know because the word could be messengers and or angels, says they came back and it says, we went to your brother Esau and he's coming out to meet you with 400 men. That's not a welcoming committee. Because no. we know the issues that Jacob and Esau had. Esau was ticked because, you know, from Esau's point of view, he stole my birthright. No, dude, you sold it fair and square. Get over it. But as far as the blessing goes, you just wanted the blessing because it was stuff. It was material stuff. You didn't care about being the patriarch or leader or carrying on the Abrahamic covenant for the family. So that's why Jacob had to do what he had to do because the prophecy to Rebekah was it was the, it was the uh, uh, older that was going to serve the younger. It was the younger that was going to get the blessing. And Isaac was going to go against that. So something had to be done. So Esau is what you would call a toxic person. We study Esau's personality, study Esau's life. You get a textbook definition of what a toxic person is, and you'll know what type of people to cut off from your life. So a toxic person has been defined as an individual who has a very negative and self-entitled um, or disordered or distorted rather outlook on life. I'll say that again because I kind of messed that up. A toxic person is an individual who has a very negative and self-entitled, distorted outlook on life. In other words, they're narcissistic. In other words, it's all about them. It's all about the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I, right? So let me give you 10 traits of a toxic person. Number one, this is how you can tell that if a person's toxic, they talk more than they listen. They talk more than they listen. And when they talk, it's all about me. Me, me, what about me? What about my needs? I don't care if you got cancer. I don't care if you can't pay your bills. I don't care if you're sick. What about me? It's like, it's like you know, the Brady Bunch. Marsha, 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 right? So if they talk more than they listen, number two, they're never wrong. Toxic people, they say they're never wrong. They always justify bad behavior to excuse and vindicate themselves. Well, if you didn't do this, then I wouldn't have done that. Well, if you didn't say this, then I wouldn't have said that. It's your fault. It's not my fault. It wasn't me. It, it, the devil made me do it. It's this woman that you gave me. It's Eve's fault, right? I mean, it's, that's, that's toxicity right there. Number three, drama follows them wherever they go. Right? They're always, they're always something, there's always some kind of drama in their life. If it's not the neighbors, it's online. If it's not online, it's at work. If it's not at work, then it's at church. I mean, no matter, they're always bickering with somebody, always fighting with somebody, always dredging up drama. Number four, they often lie and or exaggerate and are manipulative. So they'll say things like, well, everybody hates me or everybody's got it out for me. Or why does this always happen to me? You know, and they try to manipulate you to elicit sympathy from you, right? Number five, their experience is the standard by which everything else should be judged. 
Their experience is the standard by which everything else should be judged. So they're, they're selfish, and they have a selfish sense of entitlement and justice. Number six, um, let's see. They latch onto, uh, onto, um, they latch onto and smother those that they're in a relationship with. That's another indicator of a toxic person. Number six, they latch onto uh, and smother those that they're in a relationship with. They don't know the meaning of wearing out your welcome. They're like a leech. They're like a spiritual and emotional vampire. Every time you spend time with them, every time you're around them and you're finished, you don't go back a better person. You're not happy. You feel drained. You want to take a nap or you want to take a vacation or you want to run away. So that's another indication that a person is toxic. Number seven, they lack tact and common courtesy. But they'll say, oh, I'm just telling it like it is. Well, you can still tell it like it is and be nice about it. You don't have to be a jerk. You don't, ha you don't have to be callous. And don't, don't try to say that your truthfulness is some kind of form of righteousness. No, you're hurting somebody's feelings. You're tearing somebody down. It may be the truth, but you're not doing it in a constructive way. So they lack tact and common courtesy. Number eight, they exhibit manipulative, controlling behavior. So they'll be like, well, do this. You know, it's kind of like a little kid. Well, if you don't do this, you can't be my friend. Remember that on the playground? If you don't do this, then you're not my friend. Well, that's what a toxic person. They still do it in their adult life. Well, if you don't do this, I'm not talking to you. Or if you don't, if you don't do this, you don't really care. Or if you don't do this, then you're not a real Christian. If you don't do this, then you don't love Jesus the, the way you say. They're trying to manipulate you to make you feel some sort of false sense of guilt so they, you'll do something for them and they'll get their way. So that's number eight. Number nine, they love to gossip about and slander other people, especially if it makes them look better. So if they never have anything nice to say about anybody else, they're always tearing other people down and in doing it in such a way that makes themselves look good or self-righteous. Number 10, they're always the victim and it's always about them. They've got this, oh, woe is me, poor pitiful me. Looks what, look what's happened to me. I'm such a good person and people do this to me. So those are 10 traits of a toxic person. Uh, okay, so Esau is the textbook uh, toxic person. So let's kind of look at his life a little bit. So let's go to Genesis chapter 25 and start at verse 21. Genesis chapter 25, starting at verse 21. And we'll read through 26. Isaac prayed to Adonai on behalf of his wife because she was barren. Adonai answered his plea, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The children struggled with one another inside her, and she said, If it's like this, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of Adonai, and Adonai said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from your body will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, but the older will serve the younger. When the time came to give birth, Indeed, there was twins in her womb. Now the first came out reddish. All of him was like a fur coat. And they named him Esau. Esau means red and hairy. <laughs> okay, so his name was Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. 
So his name was Jacob, which means heel grabber. Isaac was 60 years old when he fathered them. Uh, so the prophecy was that Jacob was to be the one that was going to have the firstborn rights. And Esau forced his way out first. You know, I mean, it was it was like Esau thought he was at a Black Friday sale. I got to get in the I got to get through the doors first. So he pushed Jacob aside in order to be born first because he wanted to be the firstborn. I mean, the children they were just babies in the womb. They didn't know about the prophecy that the older would serve the younger. So he's like, I'm going to be the firstborn. I'm going, you know. So even you know, it's almost as if you get that impression that he pushes Jacob aside, almost kicking him in the face in order to get out the womb first. Because why else would Jacob be grabbing onto his heel? Dude, dude, don't kick me. I'm right. I'm right behind you. So he didn't want to get kicked in the face. And so Jacob is known as the heel grabber. All right. So we see it was all about Esau. It's all about me. I've got to be first. I've got to be the best. So now let's go to chapter 25 down to verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau became a man knowledgeable in hunting and outdoorsman, while Jacob was a mild man remaining in the tents. So that kind of indicates that he liked, well, obviously he liked to cook because he was making lentil stew the next time we see this interaction between Jacob and Esau, but also that he lived among the tents. The rabbis say that meant that he loved to study that he loved to worship God. He, he cared more about, you know, his relationship with God than he did about hunting or any other hobby or activity. So when the boys grew up, Esau became a man knowledgeable in hunting and an outdoorsman. There's nothing wrong with that. While Jacob was a mild man remaining in the tents. Now, Jacob loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebecca loved Jacob. So we already see a problem in the family dynamics when parents play favorites. Now, I know us who has kids, we love all of our children the same, but yet we can't help, in a sense, to favor one over the other in certain ways because maybe they're more like us, and we kind of gravitate towards them because our personalities mesh, whereas maybe the other child may not mesh so well. doesn't mean you love them any less, but you are going to have a different relationship with them. But it was all, it's kind of clear from this passage that, that uh, Isaac and Rebecca kind of showed some sort of favoritism. So it says, now, Jacob cooked a stew. Now, according to tradition, we'll later find out this is lentil stew. We know that lentils are red, and Esau calls it red stuff. But lentil stew, back in that day, was a traditional meal for somebody who's mourning or grieving the loss of a loved one. So it is said by the rabbis and sages that Abraham had just died. So Isaac was mourning uh, the loss of his father. So now Jacob cooked a stew. When Esau came into the field, he was exhausted. So he said to Jacob, please... Feed me some of that really red stuff because I'm exhausted. Now, the Hebrew, you get the impression where he's literally saying, I'm so tired I can't even eat. Just pour it down my throat. And, and how do animals eat? I don't know about you, but when I feed my dog, my dog just doesn't go down and take a bite and, mm, this is so delicious. I'm going to savor every bite. Mm -hmm. I'm going to let the flavors ruminate upon my palate. No, my dog is like... <laughs> And then sometimes my dog is like, because he's choking because he's wolfing it down. So we get this impression here that Esau is being like an animal because he's just wanting to gulp down this food. So he says, please feed me some of this really red stuff because I'm exhausted. That's why he is called Edom. What a crappy nickname. You're known for lentil stew. So you get nicknamed, uh, you know, Edom. Hey, red. Why? Because you got red hair? No, I, I, because I like lentil stew. 
So Jacob said, sell your birthright to me today. Now, a lot of people want to say that Jacob was being deceptive or crafty. No, he was kind of looking ahead and saying, look, if Esau runs the family, he's going to ruin us all. He's like, at least I know what to do with a birthright. He doesn't care about it. So he's like, I'm going to take action. So if he bites, I'm going to reel him in. Sell me your birthright today. Esau said, look, I'm about to die. Of what use is this to me, this, this birthright? So Jacob said, make a pledge to me now. So he made a pledge to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. This was a legal transaction, fair and square. There was no deceptiveness. Jacob wasn't being deceptive. He, he, he bluntly said, sell me your birthright. There's nothing secretive about that. Esau was just too dumb because he wanted his immediate needs satisfied rather than, you know, waiting. And not only that, he was going to eat a mourner's meal and eat a mourner's meal before his father Isaac could eat it. He didn't even care that his grandfather passed away, for goodness sakes. If this was true, he didn't even care that Abraham was dead. He just cared that he was hungry and he felt like he was going to die because he was so hungry. So sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank, and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Didn't even give this a second thought. Didn't even have buyer's remorse. Right? He's like, whatever, birthright. I can't eat a birthright, can I? I can't spend a birthright, can I? So big deal. Whatever. So we see that in this passage, Esau was selfish. He cared only for his immediate needs. And a lot of times, that's the way toxic people are. They only care about their immediate needs, and they think their immediate need is the most important one on the planet. doesn't matter what anybody else is going through. I mean, if somebody come up and their arm was severed and blood was squirting out everywhere, oh, that's nothing compared to the splinter they got in their finger. That's more important. But seriously, that's the way toxic people act. So he cared nothing for the uh, familial duties and responsibilities of him being the firstborn, of him getting the birthright. So he sold the birthright fair and square and uh, uh, partially fulfilled the above prophecy where the older would serve the younger. So he only cared about three people. That was me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity I like to call it. That was his priorities. First priority is me. Second, myself. Last priority, I. Now let's go to Genesis chapter 26 and start at verse 34. Let's see here, 34. Okay, so it says, When Esau was 40 years old, he took a wife, Judith, the daughter of Berari the Hittite, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. But they caused bitterness of spirit for Isaac and Rebekah. So here, again, Esau saw a good-looking woman. Didn't matter who she was or where she was from. There was already a prohibition upon, uh, upon Abraham's children not to marry into the Canaanite families because they were turning away from God. They were having intercourse with fallen angels, like weird stuff like that. They were very occultic. So uh, there was a curse on Canaan's descendants, which the Hittites were a part of. So there was this, this prohibition of marrying outside of the family. Did Esau care? Nope. She's hot. I want her. So I'm going to have her. Don't care what mom and dad think. And they ended up causing bitterness for the mom and dad, for, for Isaac and Rebekah. Made their lives miserable. 
because they were always worshiping idols and always talking about impure things, right? So Esau disobeyed family vows not to marry the Canaanites. Uh, he went on looks and pleasure and not chastity and character and godliness. And he only marries a Semite. With, uh, um, he only marries a Semite just to look good in mom and dad's eyes. It was an ulterior motive. After he found out that mom and dad didn't like these Canaanite women that he married and noticed that Jacob left in order to marry from the family, from inside the family, Esau's like, well, well I want mom and dad to, to, to think good of me. I want to look good in their eyes. So what does he do? He goes to his uncle Ishmael and marries one of Ishmael's daughters. Still in the family of Abraham, still Semitic, but still not really the right family. Because the covenantal blessing went with Isaac, didn't go with Ishmael. So he's still, he was still kind of doing his own way, even though he was trying to make good on it with his parents. So now going to Genesis chapter 27, starting with verse 30. Genesis 27, verse 30. So this is the whole issue with the blessing where Rebecca suggested to Jacob to disguise himself, to look, smell, feel like Esau in order to get the blessing so that Esau doesn't get the blessing. So it says, No sooner had Isaac finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had just gone out from his father Isaac's presence, that Esau his brother came in uh, from his hunting. Then he also prepared a delicious meal and brought it to his father and said to his father, Let my father get up and eat. Of his, of his son's wild game, that your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said, who, who are you? And he said, well, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled with intense trembling and said, who, who, who was it that hunted wild game and, and brought it to me? And I ate, and just before you came, I blessed him. And yes, he will be blessed. So blessing, there's no take backs on a blessing. When somebody's blessed, they're blessed. So it's not like, well, sorry, you blessed the wrong person. Okay, I take that back and I'm going to give it to the right person. No, no, no. Jacob was going to be blessed. Uh, so moving on, he says, when Esau heard his father's words, he shouted with intensely bitter groans. Then he said to his father, bless me, me too, my father. What does that sound like? Sounds like a toxic person. Me, me, me. What about me? What about my needs? It's unfair. Everybody hates me. The world's against me. So he's like, bless me. Me too, my father. Then he said, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. And he said, isn't this why he's named Jacob? Since he tricked me twice already. Now, that's why people will say that Jacob means trickster. And it doesn't. There's a root word that Jacob comes from that sounds like Jacob. It's related to the same word, but not necessarily the same word. So at best, Esau is making a pun. And so again, he's blame shifting. He's, he's making it somebody else's fault instead of his own fault. So he says, isn't this why his name is Jacob? Since he tricked me twice. All right, wait, wait, twice. He may have tricked you once, but he didn't trick you twice, bub. He says, my birthright has been taken. Well, he didn't trick you there. You sold it fair and square. So Esau's lying. He's trying to elicit Isaac's sympathy and trying to make him look like the poor victim. He says, my birthright has taken. Look, now he's taken my blessing. Then he says, haven't you saved one blessing for me? 
Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I've made him master over you, and all your brothers I've given to him as servants. I've provided him with grain and new wine. <clears throat> what then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Do you just have one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father, me too. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Oh, Esau, I thought you were some sort of manly kind of man. Why are you crying like a little baby? What's the matter, bud? Little whiny little brat? And Esau lifted up his voice and he wept. Esau didn't care about the blessing. He just cared, cared about the stuff that came with the blessing. He was like Madonna. He's living in a material world and he was a material boy. Right? I mean, that's all he cared about was his stuff. He didn't care about being the leader of the family, carrying on the covenant from Abraham to Isaac. He didn't care about that. He just cared about the sheep, the goats, the gold, the servants, the land, the tents, the property. Women. The women, yes. <laughs> then Isaac, then Isaac, his father, said to him, Behold, away from the land's fatness shall you dwell shall you dwell. In other words, he gives him the opposite of what he just gave Jacob, because what else could he give? He can't give the same blessing. Away from the dew of the skies above, by your sword shall you live, and your brother shall you serve. But he gives a little loophole. He gives a little out for Esau. So this is where Isaac shows a little mercy. But when you tear yourself loose, you will tear his yoke off your neck. Uh, so it says, so Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing which his father had blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, let the time come for mourning for my father. Wait, listen to this. Listen and get what Esau's really saying here. Let the time for mourning my father draw near so that I can kill my brother Jacob. Let's put it in today's language. Oh, I can't wait till dad dies. Soon as he dies, I'm killing Jacob. Who wishes their father to die? Seriously. Esau, who are you? What are you thinking? You are such a toxic person. He's like, I, I can't wait for dad to die. And then I'm going to get Jacob back for what he did to me. So he wanted the blessing out of selfishness and materialism and for the power. He didn't value uh, the family and the responsibility of the family and to God. Uh, okay, so in, in this passage, we also see that Esau plays the victim. And what does Hebrews 12, 15 say? Don't let the root of bitterness get established or take hold in your heart, right? Because bitterness makes you a hateful person, makes you a murderous person. You kill him in your head, you kill him in your heart, and then if you had a chance, you'd kill him in real life. And that's what Esau, that's what's going on with Esau. So, uh, you know, it kind of reminds you of Genesis 4, 7. Esau reminds us a lot of Cain because... God accepted Abel's offering, but not Cain's. And he says, look, Cain, if you just do what's expected of you, I I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to accept you. But you, you brought your second best. There's no, there's no issue with you bringing the fruit of your field. I get it. You're a farmer. But you didn't bring your first fruit. You didn't bring your best. You just brought your leftovers. You just brought, you know, things that were barely passable, not your best. He says, you need to get a hold of this because this is crouching at your door and it wants to master you, but you must overcome it. Did Cain listen? No. He ended up hating Jacob because he was God's favorite. They went out into a field and he murdered him, killed him. 
So this, this spirit of Cain is kind of on Esau right now. All right, now let's get to the passage of our Torah portion in Genesis chapter 33. Genesis chapter 33. This is where Jacob meets Esau. So this is years later, like 20-some years later after Jacob has been with Laban. He's got four wives. He's got, you know, 10, 11 kids by now. So it says, Then Jacob glanced up and saw, and behold, there was Esau coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children first, then Leah and her children behind them, then Rachel and Joseph behind them. But he himself passed on ahead of them, because that's what a man does, right? You know, you, you will sacrifice yourself. You'll throw yourself in front of the bus. You'll take the bullet if that means your family's going to be saved. So he says, he passed on ahead of them and bowed to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. So he was really trying to soften up his brother because remember, he just sent droves of animals, gifts to pacify him. Because after all, Esau was all about stuff. He was all about material goods, sheep, goats, camels, donkeys, whatever. So he's like, if I give him enough gifts, it's going to like lessen his anger. And then to, to, keep the men and, uh, the, to keep the women and children safe, he splits them up because he reasons, well, if he attacks one, then the others can get away. And so now he goes ahead of them because that's what a real man does. He's like, if, if he's going to kill anybody, he's gonna, if he's going to kill my family, he's got to get through me first. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. So in other words, seven times, bowing seven times was basically saying, okay, Esau, I'm your servant. He's like, you know, you're my older brother. I'm acknowledging that you're the elder. But Esau ran to meet him. Now, this is a shocker. But Esau ran to meet him, hugged him, fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. Think Esau was sincere? Uh, I don't either. Uh, that's fishy. You wouldn't be coming with 400 men unless you plan to really do somebody in. Because this wasn't a welcoming committee. So it says, but Esau ran to meet him, hugged him, fell on his neck, and kissed him. That word kissed him in the Hebrew? Very interesting. If you look at the original Hebrew, there's some weird things that go on in the Hebrew text. Sometimes there's bigger letters and smaller letters. Sometimes there's little symbols. Well, this word kissed has dots above all the letters. And what the rabbis are saying is that the way the Hebrew words it, yes, he, he hugged him. Yes, he kissed him. But the, the rabbis are implying that there was an ulterior motive for Esau doing this. He wasn't sincere in his loving his brother and kissing his brother and hugging his brother. Those dots represent bite marks. It, 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 the serpent also makes you think of a vampire, right? Judas. I, I'm Judas. Exactly. We can relate that to the Brit Kadasha, the renewed covenant, where Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. So it's, it's kind of the same thing with Esau. He's ultimately wanting to betray, find some way to betray. So he's trying to make it look like he's forgiven Jacob, like everything's fine and copacetic and honky-dory and, oh, yeah, we're brothers and I missed you and I love you and everything's fine. But those dots in the Hebrew kind of symbolize, oh, there's something fishy going on. And I think Jacob smelled it right away. All right, let me find my place here. Where were we? All right, so chapter 33. Okay, verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and hugged him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. His eyes glanced upon, up and saw the women and the children. He says, Who are these with you? The children whom God has graciously given your servant. 
see how Jacob is really trying to, you know, I'm, this is your servant. This is, you know, I'm your servant. He said, then the female servants approached and they and their children and bowed down. Leah also approached along with her children and they bowed down. And finally, Joseph and Rachel approached and bowed down. Uh, what do you mean by this whole caravan that I've met? So he said, to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. So he's calling, him, he's calling himself a servant. He's calling Esau Lord. He's really trying to butter Esau up here. But Esau said, I have plenty, oh, my brother. Uh, do, keep all, do keep all that belongs to you. And Jacob says, no, 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 please. If I have found favor in your eyes, then you will take my offering from my hand. For this is the reason that I've seen your face. It's like seeing the face of God. And if, if you've, and you've accepted me. So basically, when you give somebody a gift, if they receive it, it means they've received you. So it basically is sort of like an unspoken covenant that if I'm giving you these gifts, it means that you're not going to do anything bad to me. So now if Esau rejected these, then, you know, it would kind of been obvious. But, you know, he's, uh, Esau is like, no, 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 go ahead and keep what you have. No, 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 no. If you accepted me and everything's fine, like you say it is, you take these from me. So it says, please take my blessing that was brought to you. See, how, even how he worded that, please take my blessing. That's the whole issue is Esau was ticked off because he took the blessing. So now that Jacob has been blessed, he's giving his blessing to Esau, at least the blessing of material goods, because that's all he wanted anyway. He really didn't care about the power or the responsibility or being patriarch of the family. So he's given Esau what he wants. Please take my blessing that was brought to you because God has graciously given to me and because I have everything. So, so it's interesting. Notice that Esau said, I have plenty. So when you say, I have plenty, you're implying, well, I've got plenty, but I'm not going to argue if I can have more. So you're, you're not satisfied with plenty. You're implying that you want more when you say, I have plenty. But Jacob says, I have everything. Even after he gave away all this material stuff, these animals, he says, I have everything. He knew that blessings were more than just material. So he kept urging him until he accepted. Then he said, let's journey on and be on our way, and I'll go ahead of you. And he continued, my Lord knows that the children are tender and that the flocks and the cattle that are in my care are nursing. So if they were to be pushed hard just one day, all the flocks would die. Please let my Lord pass on, uh, uh, pass ahead of your servant, and I'll move on further gradually at a pace suited to the livestock that are before me and at a pace suited to the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Then Esau says, red flag number two, then Esau says, please let me leave with you some of my people who are with me. Does that sound fishy or what? Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. But he said, what's this? Let me find favor in my Lord's eyes. Okay, Jacob has been taking care of all these animals and half the animals he gave away to his brother. So he has less than he had before. So he definitely can take care of the animals and the children and everything. Why would he need Esau's servant's help? No, I think he was going to leave his servants behind so that the servants could take care of Jacob and his family and kill them before they got to see ear. Jacob smelled that. He smelled a rat. And he says, please, uh, he says, what is this? Let me find favor in my eyes, my Lord. So he's basically saying, if you trust me and you really have forgiven me, you won't leave your people behind. So on that day, Esau returned on his way to Seir. But Jacob returned to Sukkot, basically he turned around went in the opposite direction. And he built a house for himself. In other words, if you build a house for yourself, you're going to be staying a while. 
It's not like you pitch a tent that you can just pull up overnight. No, you built a house, you're staying for a while. So it says he built a house for himself and for his livestock, and he made booths. That's the reason the place is called Sukkot. So Jacob smelled deceit and cut Esau off permanently. He knew that Esau wasn't sincere. He knew that Esau still had plans to do him in. He wasn't going to give him the opportunity. He didn't say, well, I'm a servant of God, and God expects me to forgive and love everybody. So even if I suffer, I'm going to have to just really try to extend the olive branch to Esau, and maybe Esau will turn, change heart and turn around, and maybe I'll be able to... No. He knew exactly what was going to happen, no matter what Jacob said or did. He gave all these gifts. He held out the olive branch, showed him respect, bowed down to him, called him Lord, still didn't change Esau's heart. He was just playing nice until he could find the opportunity to do Jacob and his family in. He wanted to leave the, his family with him or his, uh, his uh, servants with him. And Jacob's like, no, 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 no. If you truly trust me, you know, go on ahead. I'll catch up with you. So he knew that once he got to Seir, they were going to pounce on him because he was in Esau's territory and he would have killed him. So Esau decided right then and there to cut him off and go in the opposite direction. So it's okay and necessary to cut people out of your life if you see no true repentance or change. I'm sure if Esau showed true repentance, I'm sure Jacob would have forgiven him at the drop of a hat and they would have had a great relationship. But he knew, he saw things didn't add up, things smelled fishy, he hasn't changed, he's still toxic. And if I let him back into my life, he's not only going to hurt me, he's going to kill my family. And, I, and I, by God, I'm not going to let that happen. So you can forgive without forgetting. Forgetting is a very dangerous thing because if you forget something that somebody has done to you, they'll just end up doing it again because you'll be oblivious to it. Oh, I've forgotten about it. So, you know, you forgive and forget. I'm all about forgiving, but no, you don't have to forget as long as that not forgetting doesn't turn into a grudge. That's the catch there. That's the rub. And that's hard to do. So even after you cut off toxic, uh, 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 toxic people, a lot of times you'll be vilified. When you cut off a toxic person, others will say, well, I thought you were a Christian. Well, I thought you were supposed to love people. What about the, what, about what the Bible says don't judge? What about the Bible says to forgive everybody? They're going to make you the villain because you decided to cut off a toxic person. You don't worry about them because they don't know a blessed thing about the Bible. They're just using the Bible to try to defend their woke ideology. So you don't worry about them. You do what's right for you, and you do what's right for your, your family. So I'm going to end with Matthew, with the passage in Matthew chapter 5. So whenever you do the right thing, there's always going to be a group of people that's going to want to vilify you, make you look like the bad guy, even though you're doing everything right and above board. But you've got to do, no matter whatever anybody else says, you've got to do what's right for you and for your family. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. I'm doing the right thing and cutting this toxic person out of my life. I love them and I forgive them, but I'm not going to be stupid enough to let them back in so they can cause chaos and havoc in my life. So blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Oh, I thought you were a believer. I thought you were a Christian. You always talk about love and grace and forgiveness, and there you won't have anything to do with this person. That's what people are going to persecute you and say to you because you cut toxic people out of your life. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely because of, uh, because of uh, account of me. 
They say, all, look, he's not, he's not a true believer. He doesn't forgive. He's holding a grudge. He's not letting this person, he's treating this person bad, blah, 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 blah. They're going to all, say all these things that evil against you falsely. But you're doing the right thing if you're cutting a toxic person out of your life. Because you're not going to give the devil a foothold to use somebody else to wreck your life, to cause drama in your life, and that of your family. And Jacob put his family first, even above his relationship with Esau. Even if there was a smidgen of thought, maybe I can salvage this relationship. He's like, no, my family is more important. They're my family now, not Esau. He's chosen his family. He's chosen his path. He's, he's proven to me that he's not changed. So I'm not going to let this person back in. So don't let anybody lie to you and fool you as a believer to make you believe and think that you have to love it. Well, you do have to love everybody, but to accept everybody and you have to be buddy-buddy with them. No, you don't. If they're an abuser, if they're a user, and if they're toxic and they're causing drama in your life and making your life miserable, and they're not going to change and they're not repentant, cut them off. And I mean, after all, that's what God says to do with people that, that are in the church that act like way, that way. Excommunicate them. Why? Because you want to be mean? No, because if you excommunicate them, then they'll realize the blessings they're missing. Man, I, I really messed up a good thing. I did have a good support base, a good family. And you're hoping that that will draw them back, that they'll repent and draw back and say, hey, I screwed up. Please forgive me. I want to reconcile. I want to change. Help me to change. But other than that, excommunicate them. And if they don't come back, that's not your, that's not your problem. That's not your concern. If you've done what we read in Matthew chapter 10 at the very uh, 18 at the very beginning of this message and it didn't work, then you've done everything that you can do now the ball's in their court and it's their responsibility to come back and to ask for forgiveness and to reconcile because you've done everything you can by the book and you're protecting yourself and your family from toxic people. So I hope that this has really helped uh, people today this message. All right, so let's close with a blessing. Uh, over the reading of God's word. Think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least of these commandments and shall teach men to do so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever shall do them and teach them the same will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. And we'll close the sermon with the ironic blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Bashem Yeshua Moshinu, for we ask and pray these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.